Okay, so last time we uh, we looked at um, Revelation chapter nine, and what we saw was the um, we saw the uh, the fifth and the sixth trumpet. Uh, we're in the midst of the trumpet judgments. Uh, the seventh seal of the book has been opened, and it has released the uh, the um, the seven trumpets. We've seen all six of the seven trumpets, and now you would think that as we uh, enter into chapter ten, um, the next thing would be the the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet's about to blow, but actually, uh, there is another interlude. If you remember, we when we looked at the uh, seven seals. Uh, there were six seals broken, uh, and then there was an interlude, and then uh, the seventh seal was broken. We're going to see the same thing in both the trumpets and the vials, the bowls, the bowl judgments. Uh, there was six trumpets that have been blown. Now there's going to be an interlude, and uh, and uh, the seventh trumpet is going to be blown after that. So in the in the interlude is uh, going to be chapter ten and chapter eleven. Three things are going to happen. Three visions are going to come about before we see the blowing of the of the uh, seventh trumpet. Um, what we're going to see in chapter ten is we're going to see the testimony, the divine testimony of the faithful witness, uh, and we're going to explain that as we go. Um, and then in chapter eleven, we're going to see the uh, the measuring of the temple and uh, the two witnesses, the testimony of the two witnesses. And then in uh, chapter twelve, the the um, then after that, we'll see the the uh, the blowing of the seventh trumpet. I'm I'm looking at something else while I'm doing this. Um, so let's. Uh, you'll be happy to know. Probably we're not going to give you any long quotes from Josephus in this in this episode or anything like that. Um, there is a lot of agreement in chapter ten about what it is that we're seeing, uh, the meaning of these symbols and how they pertain. There's uh, of course there's going to be differences in application as we see the different viewpoints of Revelation, but uh, there's lots of agreement about uh, in all the camps as to who this divine witness is and what this divine uh, testimony. It, it means, and so we're going to see that as we as we walk through. Um, the first thing, the first thing that we're going to see is that uh, you're going to see this angel. It's an angel. It says a mighty angel is going to uh, is going to come down out of heaven, and uh, he's going to. Well, let me just read it. Let me start in verse one. It says, "Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like a pillar, like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll." open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he called out with a loud voice like a like a lion roaring when he called out the seven thunders sounded so the first thing we're going to need to uh, we're going to need to talk about is who this who this mighty angel is and there's a little there's some disagreement about that but per, there's uh i think the majority agree that uh, this is a picture of uh, it's either a picture of Christ or it's a picture of a messenger that is representing Christ. Um, uh, there's lots of um, you know there's uh, there's lots of uh, discussion about whether it is in fact Christ Himself or whether it is uh, you know whether it is uh, some kind of divine messenger, some kind of heavenly messenger. Um, in my view, and I think in the majority of you of people's view no matter what camp that they find themselves in this is it's christ himself it's a picture it's a picture remember now these are visions it's it's a picture it's a symbol of of christ himself the messiah and i'm going to give you some evidence for that as we look at the text and we look at some of the backgrounds of the text but I want you to uh, I, I want you to recognize that what's going on here before we even begin, uh, you need to recognize that what's going on here is uh, the whole motif of Revelation so far. We've seen it all the way from chapter four to chapter ten that we're in now. Uh, we've seen it uh, taking place in the form of uh, of covenant covenant judgment covenant lawsuit god is bringing forth the judgments that he promised to bring forth uh 
um, in Deuteronomy 28, 29, uh, Leviticus, uh, uh, he, he promised to, uh, you know, bring the plagues of Egypt upon the people. He promised, you know, all these huge covenant judgments if they refuse to keep the covenant. Well, the covenant has been now fulfilled once and for all in the, uh, the, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the quote-unquote covenant people have rejected that covenant. And so um, the covenant judgments, as the new covenant is uh, put in force, the covenant judgments of the old are being poured out uh, upon, uh, upon the land. And so what we see here is we're going to see uh, the testimony. We're going to see uh, testimony. When I say testimony, uh, a lot of times you think of, of uh, the testimony of, you know, like your life, my testimony. I'm giving my testimony. But what I want you to think is uh, the testimony of uh, an individual in a courtroom. You know, you raise your hand in the courtroom. You put your hand on the Bible. You say you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth. And, you know, all that you raise your right hand. And, and that's how you give testimony. And that's what you're going to see. Uh, here is uh, the heavenly Messiah, the the angel of the Lord from the Old Testament, which is the second person of the Trinity. Uh, he is going to come, uh, and the vision that John sees is one of uh, an enormous, mighty angel, big enough to put a foot on the land, foot on the sea, and we're going to explain all that as we go. Um, but he is uh, going to raise his right hand, and he's going to give testimony. And this is the divine witness. This is the 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 divine testimony as to what is about to happen. Six trumpets have blown, and now it is time, it's almost time for the seventh to blow. So, first, let's just look at some evidence about who this mighty angel is. Um, he is uh, he is described using language. If you if you saw the descriptions of him, you know he's got a rainbow over his head. He's got feet, legs of you know like pillars of fire. He's wrapped in a cloud. Uh, this language is. Um, it's used of the of the Father and of Christ in Revelation, and that's it. And the Old Testament is replete with uh, this language referencing God uh, and uh, just uh, the divine the divine nature of God. Um, let's just we'll just start with uh, the first one, and we'll go we'll go down through it. The first thing is that he's clothed with a cloud. That's the first thing that it says. It says, "I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, and he was wrapped." in a cloud. Uh, well, I mean, you don't have to go very far in Revelation, the first chapter of Revelation, when we're introduced, uh, you know, to the book uh, in verse seven, it says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and those who pierced him and all the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Um, but even in the Old Testament, the idea of cloud, the idea of being wrapped in a cloud or being present in the cloud, that is... Um, that is uh, indicative of it's indicative of God. It's indicative of Yahweh. Uh, in Exodus thirty three nine, uh, when Moses entered into the tabernacle, it says a pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. So God's presence was in a pillar of cloud as it descended upon the tabernacle. In Exodus 34, 5, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. In Numbers eleven twenty five, it says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took him, took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. Uh, Numbers twelve five, uh, it says, And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and, and called to Aaron and Miriam. In Exodus sixteen ten, it says, And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And then, of course, in Leviticus 16, uh, um, especially chapter 2, God says, I'll appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, which is the, the, the Shekinah glory of God. It was a glory cloud that was would appear above the mercy seat at the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. Um, but even all these things, you know, you, there's there's other references that we can go and point to about coming in clouds. There's prophecies in Isaiah uh, and Ezekiel about um, uh, him coming against uh, actual nations. Like he said, he'll come uh, riding on the clouds to Egypt and, you know, destroy the the people there and uh, judgment oracles and those things. But um, you have to remember 
that uh, John is in his presentations of Jesus, especially uh, the first chapter. And as we see, as we see Christ uh, presented in the book of Revelation, he is often presented in images that come from Daniel chapter seven, when we see the son of man that ascended to the ancient of days. And he came with the clouds to the ancient of days. So there is a a sense in which uh, the imagery is taken from Daniel chapter seven. And what we're seeing here is, is this divine son of man who comes and receives the the kingdom from the ancient of days. And so to be wrapped in a cloud, it is only ever uh, a description of of either the father. It's describing the father's coming in judgment in the Old Testament and his uh, his uh, Yahweh's uh, presence in the Old Testament. But it's also descriptive of the son of man as he comes to the to the throne of uh, the ancient of days in Daniel chapter seven. Uh, The second thing he's see is a rainbow rainbow at his head and and you know as a description of 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 god in chapter four of revelation you see chapter revelation verse four chapter four verse three says and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald so we're we're describing there the throne of god the one who sits on the throne that's before the lamb came and took took the the scroll of the book and so, uh, what you see there is there is there is the rainbow, and but it's also a des- description of God's throne, as we have seen already in Ezekiel's vision, Ezekiel one twenty eight, like the appearance of a bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. He's describing the throne of God as he sees it in the sky in the heavens, uh, in Ezekiel's vision. So the rainbow has uh, has been uh, you know we talked about that before as we saw it in in chapter four. But the rainbow is is seen as a a description of the throne of God, of, of the throne of, of of Yahweh. And then you got his face shone like the sun. And I mean, it's almost identical language there to uh, to describing Jesus from Revelation one sixteen. Uh, in Revelation one sixteen, it says his face. That's where that's where uh, John heard a voice that sounded like a trumpet, and he turned and he saw one like a son of man walking among the candles. Sticks. And one of the descriptors that he uses there was that his face sh- was uh, his face was like the sun shining in full strength, and it's almost it's almost uh, identical language there as it is here in Revelation chapter ten. And then you, you can see the same language in Matthew chapter seventeen verse two at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured before uh, three of his disciples. There it says, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the son Matthew 17:2 And so already you see that we have he is clothed with a cloud he is uh, a rainbow above his head he has uh, a face shining like the sun all three of those are, uh, are are nothing new to us we have seen descriptions of them in both the old testament and the new testament to refer to to God to refer to the divine presence and the fourth thing that he says is that he has uh, feet like pillars of fire and that's uh, once again that's nothing new it goes back to revelation chapter 1 his uh, Revelation chapter 1 verse 15 says his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And then once again, we'll go back to Ezekiel chapter 1, which which mirrors the visions that John sees uh, in Revelation. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 27, it says, and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were a gleaming metal. That's from the waist up, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And then here's where he describes the waist down. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him. So his feet like pillars of fire is the same thing that Ezekiel saw. It's the same thing that John saw in Revelation chapter 1. So if you take all these together, uh, if you take all these together, that he was clothed with a cloud, that he has a rainbow above his head, that his face uh, sh- shone like the sun, which is almost identical language describing Jesus in other parts of the New Testament, and that his feet were like pillars of fire. Um, it it's almost inconceivable that this mighty angel, quote unquote, mighty angel, could be anything other than 
It could be anyone other than Christ. Um, the problem we have is that why would he be called an angel? Why would he be called an angel? Uh, and of course, the word angel just means messenger. We see the we see the word angelos meaning you know human. It can mean human messengers. It can mean divine messengers. Uh, of course, it does mean the heavenly hosts and all those kind of things. Um, but what so many people fail to realize, and I, I got to talk about this a little last night with uh, uh, the the youth. In, in class as we discussed the Trinity was the um, in the Old Testament uh, we have the angel of the Lord uh clearly represented as Yahweh himself the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament there now there was there were angels of the Lord in different places but we're talking about the uh, the uh, the the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament was obviously um, the second person of the Trinity was the pre-incarnate Christ appearing to man the the, uh, the son the son of God uh, give me give you a couple examples and what I'm what I'm showing you here is that it's not a big stretch in the Old Testament mindset, in the Old Testament system, to call the second person of the Trinity the angel of the Lord or a mighty angel. Uh, in in Exodus chapter three, uh, verse two, that's a very familiar passage to many of us. We all know all about it. It's the burning bush where Moses uh, uh, spoke to Yahweh. Um, but what a lot of people fail to realize is that uh, in Exodus chapter three, verse two, it's the angel of the Lord that appears to Moses in the burning bush. And then they go on to talk and the angel of the Lord, the one speaks from the burning bush is God himself. He's that's where he says, I I am that I am. And in verse six, he says, uh, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, it was the angel of the Lord that appeared to Moses in the burning bush. But this angel of the Lord spoke uh, as Yahweh. I am the God of your father. And so you can see the distinction in the midst of those things. The same thing you see in Judges chapter two, verses one through four. Uh, the angel of the Lord tells the people uh, there in Judges, I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. Uh, so it's an angel of the Lord. It's not It's not an angel. It's the angel of the Lord. Uh, it's represented as God himself. I brought you out of Egypt. And then, of course, you know, you got uh, Genesis 22, uh, where, uh, where Isaac is being offered by Abraham. Uh, it is the angel of the Lord that stopped Abraham from killing Isaac. And the angel of the Lord said, you have not withheld your son from me so there, there there's lots of other old testament you know pictures the you got the captain of the armies that spoke to to joshua and, and you got different things where it talks about the angel of the lord um there there are lots of uh lots of texts where you can see the angel of the lord appears but the the angel of the lord with the definite article the angel of the lord uh, speaks as yahweh himself and so it's not a very big stretch to see this mighty angel who comes down uh, out of heaven uh, as as Christ himself as the the son the second person of the Trinity himself and there as we go along there are going to be other things that we see he's going to be holding the book in his right hand it's going to be the same book that we've seen that he the lamb took from the uh, the the one who sat upon the throne and so this mighty angel comes down and first we have a description of him uh, he was clothed with a cloud you know, legs like fire, face shone like the sun. These things are, uh, in other places, descriptors uh, of the Messiah, of the divine Christ, of the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Um, and the, the second thing we're going to see is that we, we talked about a second ago, the book. Um, he holds this book open, this little book. Uh, the book, the word, the word... Um, the word book here is not the same exact word as we've seen in uh, in chapter five, where uh, the lamb came and took the book from the one on the throne. Uh, um, uh, the word is uh, biblaridon, and it's without getting into a huge Greek lesson. It's the diminutive form of the word biblios, which means the smaller, smaller version, and that's why it's translated little book in a lot of our modern translations. And there's lots of speculation as to why it's little now. You know, it's because the angel appears to be so big. You know, the in the vision, it seems like he's putting one foot on the sea, one foot on the land. He's a huge angel, and so the book, you know, is a little book 
Or some people say that it's a little book here because John is going to be asked to to swallow it here in, in a little bit. Uh, and there's lots of speculation about that. We, 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 the fact is we just don't know. Don't know why it's called a little book here. Um, but but it is. And we've seen this book before. It's We saw it in Revelation chapter 5 verse 1. The one who sat on the throne held the book in his right hand. If you remember, we talked about the book being the covenant judgments. We talked about the book. Um, it was written on the front and on the back. And we connected that with the uh, the uh, the the book that um, uh, Ezekiel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah saw. It's one of the two. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, and it, he was told to uh, he was told to pronounce lamentations and judgments and woes. It was it was the book of the covenant. It was the covenant judgments that would be poured out. The covenant blessings and judgments. And these were opened. Uh, and when each seal was opened, a different judgment was poured out. Well, this book now that we see, it's not in the right hand of the one on the throne anymore. It's in the right hand of this mighty angel and why is that because the lamb came and took the book from the one on the throne and began opening the seals and the book is open here it was an open book because all the seals have been opened all seven seals have been opened and at the seventh seal the it released the seven trumpets and now we're in the midst of the seven trumpet judgments and so all the all the seals are open so the the book that john sees in the hand of this of this uh, mighty angel is uh, the same book that we saw in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 uh, or Revelation chapter 5 and it is open now because all the seals have have been um, have been broken have been opened um, and it, there's another reason to see this angel here is Christ uh, the the authority of uh, uh, of, of judgment, of pronouncing this judgment, of opening these seals, of pronouncing these uh, these seven trumpets, it's given to Christ, and He holds the authority. He holds the authority of judgment. It's something that we uh, we often lose sight of today. Uh, in John five twenty two and twenty three, Jesus says, "The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father." And so, what we see here is the angel of the Lord. We're talking about the Christ here, the mighty angel that we see in Revelation chapter 10. He has the authority to pronounce these judgments, to open these seals, to set loose these judgments. And he's going to tell us here in a moment that uh, the judgments will delay no longer. The seventh trumpet is about to be blown. Uh, in, in Paul's sermon to uh, uh, um the people on Mars Hill uh, in Acts chapter 17, in verse 31 of Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul is, is speaking to the philosophers, to the Epicureans and the Stoics, and he is uh, telling them about the gospel. And he says, because, in verse 31, because he has fixed, talking about God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What he's saying there is all judgment. All judgment in righteousness is going to be done by the Son. He is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and he raised him from the dead, talking about Christ. He has the authority here to pronounce those judgments. Jesus has the authority to uh, to pronounce judgment upon, uh, upon a nation, upon a people, upon an individual. It is all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ. That's what he said uh, before he ascended uh, to the he- to uh, to the right hand of the Father, and uh, and we we see that here in this angel who is about to uh, who is about to give testimony. Uh, now it said the angel stands on the sea and on the land. Um, of course, in one sense, this demonstrates, uh, as many people have noted, uh, the sovereignty, his sovereignty over all the earth, his sovereignty over all all the people of the earth. Really, is what it's talking about. Um, and and to be honest, almost all the commentators, all the scholars, all the all the preachers that are going to preach through this text, um, pretty much everyone from every view 
viewpoint. All the ones who are preterists or futurists or spiritualists or whatever, they're going to agree about what the sea and the land means here. They're going to agree on those things. So this is really not controversial at all. You know, a lot of people with different viewpoints of Revelation, they're all going to come together and agree pretty much. I mean, there are some there are some fringes that see different things, but almost everyone is going to agree about the sea and the land. Of course, we've told you before the land in the land in the uh, Old Testament in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, uh, is is the people of Israel. It's often portrayed when when God says the land, like with a definite article, not a land, but the land. He's talking about the promised land. He's talking to Joshua, saying, "I'm giving you the land." And then when you come to the land, and over and over and over and over again, it's the land. So when you have the definite article, the land, uh, he's talking about the people of Israel, the land. Uh, it's almost it's it's just so common for the promised land it's it's just undeniable uh but what i but i what i wanted to point out is um when when he says he puts his feet on the land and on the sea he's talking about his sovereignty over both israel and the gentiles the gentiles are referenced as the sea i'll explain that in just a moment but isn't it interesting i found this interesting as i was reading through the text again before before this isn't it interesting here that the word gay which we've talked about before can mean land, can mean earth, can mean ground, can mean, depending on the context, can mean all kinds of different things uh, as far as land or earth or whatever. Isn't it, isn't it funny that it's translated land here in almost every modern English translation? I looked up a bunch of them, and almost every modern English translation, it's translated land. Now, King James is still say, it still says earth, but it's translated land. This same word, gay, is translated, which is uh, up until now, it's almost exclusively in the modern translations been translated as earth, like the whole earth. And it, to be fair, we've talked about this before, it can mean that and does mean that in some contexts in the Greek Old Testament and in the New Testament. Uh, but all all this way i've been telling you now this word gay it can be translated either way depending on your presupposition if we're talking about the land of israel just the land you know it's it's used in the septuagint it's translated land it's used for the word land and i've i've kind of labored throughout this uh, process to to let you know that yeah it probably should be translated land because the context is that these judgments are being poured out on the land as the roman came romans came and the jewish war and all that kind of stuff and here, uh, here we have uh, all the translators in the modern translations. Uh, they're agreeing that you know because of the context, this probably shouldn't be translated as Earth, because it doesn't make much sense to say he came and put his one foot on the whole Earth, and then he came and put his one foot on the on the sea. Uh, most of them recognize that the specific context uh, that what he's talking about here is uh, the the dry ground and the sea, or in most cases, almost everyone's going to agree, the land of Israel and the Gentile world. Um, and they all see that context, and so they translate it accordingly. So a lot of people that, you know, maybe you've listened to these so far, and you've been saying, well, Jason, and not just Jason, there's quite a few other people that, that say this, but, uh, you know, you know, you kind of making a point that it's translated earth and earth and earth and earth, and you're saying it's land, land, land. How could they, you know, how could they not translate it, you know, uh, consistently well here you see it's a it's a translator's preference when they when they see the word gay they translate it as either depending on the context as land as earth as ground as uh, you know people you know you can reach down and grab you a handful of earth and what you got is not the whole earth but you got ground you got some dirt in your hand you know that's that's the kind of picture that we're seeing here and so he he puts one foot on the land he puts one foot on the sea the sea is the gentile world uh, the the nations in Isaiah 17 12 it says ah the thunder of many peoples they thunder like the thundering of the sea ah the roar of the nations they roar like the roaring of mighty waters and this was a common metaphor not just uh, not just here for our study but all the way through uh, Israelite history was to um, was to uh, compare the Gentiles to the sea and the reason that is uh, you'll hear you'll hear a lot of people say that and that's nothing new a lot of people agree you've probably heard preachers that preach you know the you know about different things um 
about the sea being the Gentiles and all that. And the reason they do that is because uh, the sea, the waters, uh, it, it kind of came to symbolize chaos or, or uh, you know, uh, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Israelite mindset, especially since at the very beginning, you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void and it hovered over the, the waters, you know, the, the chaos of the waters. And it was God who came and said, let there be an order starting to started to appear out of the chaos and that the the sea became the symbol of the gentiles the the israelites weren't hardly ever a seafaring people um not to say that they didn't try to make some pirate ships and try to try to do battle with rome uh later on but they never were much of a seafaring people and the the sea was always given to the pretty much given over to the gentiles that was their you know that was their thing and so what you see here is you see a dual picture you see this mighty angel coming down out of heaven He's not falling out of heaven like the angel we saw in the last chapter, uh, Satan falling like lightning. He's coming down out of heaven, descending out of heaven, and he puts he plants one one foot on the sea, one foot on the land, and it's a demonstration of his sovereignty over the whole earth. Uh, the The sea and the land represents the whole of creation, his sovereignty over all creation, and uh, it's his sovereignty over over all people as well. And like I said, I'm not going to belabor that point because. Most everybody's going to agree. You just pick up a commentary; they'll they'll uh, they'll pretty much agree that he's talking about the Israelites and the Gentiles there. And what he's going to do, though, what he's going to do is is really astounding. Uh, the angel is going to call out with a loud voice, and he's going to swear. He's going to swear an oath uh, by by the Creator. Um, this loud voice in uh, verse three it says, "And called he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring." Um, here you got another symbol that could be a representation of Christ. His voice is like you know his voice is like a lion's roar. Um, now of course you got the the Christ being called the Lion of Judah. You got that, um, but it also may be a reference to the prophecy of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah twenty five thirty, it says the Lord will roar from on high and from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. Uh, this is uh, this is a prophecy of God punishing those who uh, bring his people into captivity, and that's what we're seeing here. Is that Jerusalem itself has uh, begun to bring God's people, those who are in Christ into a quote-unquote captivity. Um, in this Jeremiah 25, he's going to list uh, a bunch of kings that are the subject of this prophecy. And two of those kings we have are the Pharaoh of Egypt and we have the king of Babylon. And those are two things, two descriptions that John has given in Revelation of Jerusalem. The city is called Egypt. The city is called Babylon. And so the angel cries out with a loud voice. And what we're going to see here is this next thing is, to be honest, uh, nobody knows. Nobody knows what it is. The testimony we have next is of the seven thunders. Uh, when he cries out with a loud voice, verse uh, at the end of verse 3, it says, When he called out, uh, the seven thunders sounded. And when the verse 4 says, And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the thunders have said, and do not write it down. Now, there is a lot of debate about what these seven thunders are and what they have said. Um, there's lots of speculations. I mean, are these heavenly beings? Are they angels? Uh, in Revelation 6.1, we have one of the living creatures there. He, he spoke with a voice like thunder. Is that is that what's being spoken of here? Um, Revelation 19.6, you got the same phrase, uh, sounded like thunder, uh, used of the heavenly host praise of God. Is, is that what's being done here? The seven thunders sounded. Um, you know, and then, you know, John, in John chapter 12, verses 28 through 29, uh, the people heard a voice from heaven. Uh, some of them understood what it said. Some of them did not. The ones who did not understand it said that it sounded like a, like a, like thunder from heaven. Uh, there's lots of things we could talk about, about what it is, about who they are, about what they mean, what they've said. But just to be honest with you, nobody knows. Um, there are, 
you know, whole papers written about the Thunders and who they are and what what they mean. And but we're not told. I mean, it's it, it, we're not told who they are. We don't know. And so. Anything that I that I go, I mean, I could tell you an educated guess. Uh, lots of people have taken educated guesses based on based on the context of thunder throughout the Old Testament and all that kind of thing. Um, but at best, it's a, an educated guess. And the reason I'm not saying I'm beyond that because I take educated guesses all the time based on what the text says. But the reason why I think we should just we should just move on and and say we don't know and we're not supposed to know is because John is commanded not to write down what they said. Now, from this, you understand, we understand that obviously uh, the thunders have spoke understandably. So it's not just sound. It's not just crashing and uh, sound of thunder. The thunders that is being referred to here they spoke with a voice. They spoke with an understandable voice. Uh, they didn't just make noise. And John prepares to write down what the thunders have said, uh, but he is commanded not to write them down. Uh, he's commanded to seal them up, which means uh, which means to keep it hidden, to to not write it down. Um, and so we're not supposed to know. We're not, I mean, God has intentionally kept this from our kept this from our realm of knowledge. We're not supposed to know what they were, who they were, or what they said. Um, just as, uh, it reminds me of Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, when he talked about the man being caught up to the third heavens, he said, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So, even in the heavenly realm, we see that there are things that man cannot utter. Um it's a good lesson for us to remember that there are still things that are unknown, things that God has chosen not to reveal to us. That's why I always make sure I say, I try to anyway, when we look at this uh, book of Revelation, that we need to approach these texts with humility because there are still things that are have not been revealed to us. There are things that we are not uh, supposed to... Uh, 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 tread on boldly. There are things that God has chosen not to reveal. And whatever these thunders said to John, uh, he was commanded not to write them down. So we're not supposed to know. And so that makes me, just the fact that he was told not to write them down makes me a little hesitant to uh, go into deep speculation about what they were. Some people say they were judgments that God didn't pour out. Some say they were uh, judgments that were poured out that we just don't know about. I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of speculations. Uh, the best thing we can do is just move on because God has told us that these are, are not things that we are supposed to know. Um, and so what we're going to see here as we, uh, there's not many verses in this chapter, only 11, uh, I think. Uh, and so uh, as we go on in chapter, in verse 5 through 7, what we're going to see is the angel's testimony. It says, and the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his hand, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, earth and what is in it, and sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. That's verses 5 through 7. Now let's take these apart. The angel is given his testimony as if he's in court. He is the divine witness. Notice that he raises his right hand. Most of y'all will be familiar. If you've ever had jury duty or if you've ever been a witness in a courtroom, you know exactly what he's talking about, having to raise your right hand. But what so many people don't know is where that come from. Uh, it was a reference. It's a reference here in Revelation to Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. It's, uh, it's almost... Um, I mean, you can't deny the reference. Uh, let me read Daniel chapter 12, verse 7 to you. It says, And I heard the man clothed in linen, this is the, the Son of Man figure, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. 
That's exactly what John is seeing here. He raises his hand, and Daniel, it's both hands, but right hand and his left hand toward heaven. He testifies. He swears by him who lives forever. We see here in Revelation, the angel swears by the one who created the heavens, who created the earth, created the, the things under the earth, um, or in the sea, excuse me. And he swears in, in Daniel that it's going to be a time, times, and half a time uh, before these things are fulfilled. And here uh, in Revelation, John says the angel swears that there will be no more delay. There will be no more delay. The seventh angel, when the seventh angel sounds, the mystery will be revealed just as he has revealed to his prophets. That is the, the prophets, Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all those that we've already been been looking at that prophesied this coming of the Son of Man and the the remnant of God's people. Uh, so this this is a picture of Daniel chapter twelve verse seven. John is seeing the fulfillment of what Daniel saw. Uh, the Son of Man, like I said, raised his hand um, and he swore an oath, and he gave us a period of time when these things would be fulfilled. Time, times, and times and a half. And the period of time that John mentions here is not a period that we have to wait. He said there will no longer be any delay. We'll talk about that in a moment. Let's talk about the raising of the hand thing. That comes from Deuteronomy 32 verses 40 and 43. It gives us an example there of uh, a covenant oath that uh, that is taken with uh, with the hand raised. Uh, it says, "For I, it's a, it's in the middle of uh, it's in the middle of uh, Moses's song, Deuteronomy thirty-two, and, and he's talking about the covenant, uh, the covenant, swearing an oath of the covenant. It says, "For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrow." drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long haired heads of the enemy uh, rejoice with him O heavens bow down to him all gods for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries he repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land now the reason why I read all of that to you was to show you that he raised his hand swore an oath and that oath was judgment it, the oath oath was vengeance upon his enemies. The oath was to cleanse his land from those who oppose his people. And so that's where the, the raising of the hand to take an oath comes from. It points back to the covenant oath that Moses sang in his song in, in Deuteronomy chapter 32. So the angel we've already seen he swears by the creator the same that the same way that in Daniel chapter 12 the son of man figure swears by the one who lives forever uh, he cre- he swears by the creator and let's look at the content of what he swears let's look at the content of his testimony let's look at the content of his oath he says first of all there will be no more delay the the time is fulfilled there's no more delay uh, the word here is uh, is chronos and you'll understand that word uh, meaning time, you know that's where we get the word chronology and all that kind of stuff. It's it means time, uh, and so saying that time will be no more is uh, it's an accurate translation. It's a it's a literal rendering. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you'll see that in King James version and some of the other um, some of the other formal translations. It'll say time will be no more. Um, a lot of people have taken that to mean this right here is the end and there's not going to be any more time after this time stops you know the the eternity starts however you want to put it time will be no more but the the word chronos is uh it can be also used as a delay uh, uh the the word is used throughout the new testament the verb form of the word is used throughout the new testament to talk about a a, a time of waiting a time of delay um but in the in the most scholarly lexicon that we have at the moment it's called the the bower danker aren't in gingrich and people call it bdag for short uh the title of it is a greek english lexicon of the new testament and early christian literature if that helps you any uh in that lexicon the definition of chronos there's three definitions the one that is applied to revelation 10 6 uh 
is this is the definition of the word a period during which something is delayed uh, respite or a delay and so what we see here is that he's not saying that time in it in of itself will be no more he's saying that there will be no longer any more delay the time is come uh, where Daniel says that judgment will wait for a time times and half a time and we can talk about what that is uh, Christ now swears that the time of waiting the time is done uh, think about it now what he's saying is the time is completed uh, the time that Daniel prophesied would have to wait for uh, the des- destruction of the holy people uh, that's what it says in Daniel chapter 12 verse 7 uh, would be a time, times, and times, and I have that those times would be the time of waiting that uh, that would come before this, uh, these these uh, uh, prophecies would be uh, brought to completion. Well, the quote unquote time is no more. The time is done. The time is is over with, and it's completed. And now the judgments will take will take effect. And so what we're seeing here is a fulfillment. We're seeing that Christ is, is coming down out of heaven, got the book in his hand, and he is pronouncing that the prophecy that Daniel made in Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, is being fulfilled now. That's what he's saying. The time is over. Um, Bass, uh, uh, Ralph Bass, I think is his name. I, I may have that name, the first name wrong. Uh, he has a commentary on Revelation and he sees this time, quote unquote, being finished as a 40 year uh, period of testing throughout the Old Testament. You see these 40 year periods of testing, you know, Moses and the people in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus for 40 days, uh, a, a period of testing over and over again uh, for, for 40. You know, Jesus uh, spent uh, spent 40 days in the wilderness. I already said that. Anyway, he sees this 40 year period between the the resurrection of Jesus and the destruction of the temple as a period of testing, testing Israel. They have been given Messiah. They have been given the new covenant. They have been given the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Old Testament, the fulfillment of what their religion pointed to. And now they have a period of time where the gospel is going forth and they are to accept it. They are to trust in Christ. They are to receive the new covenant. And that 40 year period of testing for them is now over and they will, you know, Jerusalem will be destroyed now in AD 70 as that 40 year period of testing comes to a close. That's an interesting viewpoint. I can't prove that or anything. And then that's not, you know, that's not something I can say beyond a shadow of doubt, but that's very interesting. And the the chronology kind of fits. And so um, it's something to look into. Um, but it says, he says in his oath here, the angel says uh, that at the blowing of the seventh trumpet, the seventh trumpet, uh, the mystery will be completed. The mystery will finally be revealed. It says in verse 7, but in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, remember he's looking forward to the seventh trumpet being blown, it says the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as the as he announced to his servants, the prophecy, prophets. Uh, so what is this mystery? Well, when the seventh trumpet sounds, the fulfillment will be realized. Uh, later, we're going to later we're going to examine uh, the case to whether the the seven bowls are actually uh, a representation, recapitulation of the seven trumpets. Whether they're just viewing the seven judgments uh, from a different angle. Um, but what he's saying is that the mystery of God will be fulfilled. So the question we have to answer is: What is the mystery? Uh, that will be completed. What is the mystery of God? Um, and, and that's something that's answered for us throughout the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings. Uh, he is a, uh, he is one that talks about the quote unquote mystery of God all the time. Uh, in the Bible, a mystery is not what you're thinking a mystery. Like you go to mystery theater and you're trying to figure out you know who done it. Uh, that's the mystery, or it's a question, a puzzle to be solved. Uh, that is not the uh, that's not the uh, what mystery. The word mysterion means in uh, in, in uh, the Bible. Um, what it is, is it's a secret that has been unknown, uh, but is now revealed. It is uh, something that was hidden, that men did not did not know or did not understand, but it now has been revealed to people. Um, now, let me give you a few verses. In Romans sixteen twenty five through 26, uh, Paul talks about this mystery. And listen to these verses carefully, because they're going to give us the answer as to what this mystery is that's going to be completed. 
In Romans 16, 25 and 26, it says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. So that kind of defines mystery for us. The thing that has been kept hidden, but now has been revealed through the prophet's writings. Uh, Ephesians 1 verse 9 says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And this is the mystery to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. Okay. That's a little, that's a little narrower definition of mystery. Now here's where we're going to, uh, these next two are where we're going to really understand what he's talking about when he says this mystery in Ephesians chapter three, verse three through six, it says how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations at his, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. This mystery, here's the definition. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What is the mystery? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same bodies. If you go back and look in Ephesians chapter 2, that whole, the the last three-fourths of that chapter talk about how God has taken the old man, which is Israel, and the new man, and he has combined them and made them one. He has taken taken the two groups, knocked down the dividing wall of partition between the two. Uh, he says, you Gentiles, you were once uh, far off from the commonwealth of Israel. Now you have been brought nigh by the blood of Christ. This mystery here in Ephesians 3, uh, verse 3 through 6, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with us, talking about Israel. In Colossians 1, 26 through 27, Paul says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so over and over again, Paul connects this mystery, quote unquote, mystery of God with the fact that the Gentiles are now coming into the kingdom of God through Christ Jesus. There is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all people that come by Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ are accepted into the kingdom of God and they are the people of God in Christ. That is the mystery that is to be revealed. Now, go back to Revelation. Verse 7 says, But that in the days of the trumpet call, to be sounded by the seventh angel, when the seventh angel sounds, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Remember we told you what the what the, the judgments in Revelation pointed to for the most part. We're going to see the second coming. We're going to see the end of history as we go through Revelation. But for the most part of the book of Revelation, what we're talking about is the destruction of the city and the temple of Jerusalem, the wiping away of the last vestiges of the old covenant, uh, the wiping away way of uh, the temple of God, uh, the sacrificial system, biblical Judaism uh, being destroyed from the earth and it is from that point on that Christianity became um, became its own um, I don't want to say its own religion, that just don't, don't sound right to me, but it, that's really what happened up until that point, from a Roman perspective anyway, and, and from a, a lot of Jewish perspectives uh, Christianity was just a heretical sect of Judaism. You know, they, they the Jews didn't believe that uh, Christians were, um, they believed they were just heretics uh, being part of, of Judaism. And as it grew and grew, Gentiles started coming in. As it grew out from Jerusalem and the missionaries went out and Paul's missionary journeys, Gentiles started coming in. And by the time that we, we come to AD 70 and the 
destruction of the temple, there were more Gentiles in the church, more than likely, than there were Jewish people in the church. There were churches all over the Roman world by this time. And, uh, and so what we see is this is the fulfillment of, of the mystery of God. The Gentiles themselves have uh, the glory of Christ, have the glory of Christ being in them and have been accepted into the kingdom of God. Uh, the end of the age, verse uh, verse seven in Revelation says, "Just as he announced to his servants uh, the prophets, but in the days of the trumpet call by the to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants uh, the prophets." And so, what we see is that the completed mystery, which is the gospel for both Jew and Gentile, the uniting of one people under Christ was revealed in the gospel. It was inaugurated in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. It was it was uh, brought forth as the gospel went out through the apostles. It was vindicated as being God's plan, as God's purposes in the destruction of uh, the temple and, and Jerusalem as the, the, the old covenant judgments are poured out and it will one day be consummated as Christ comes for a second time in power and glory to uh, to consummate the kingdom, so the mystery is the the mystery is the gospel that was first preached uh, to the prophets. Now, if you saw that at the end of verse seven, just as he announced, this is uh, what is this? This is the English Standard Version, uh, King James Version says that he declared uh, to his servants the prophets. Uh, what does the New American Standard say? Let me look it up. This is a professional podcast right here. Uh, New American Standard says that he preached. Oh, how about that? Uh, so he says, the New American Standard says, the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. The word is evangelized. Uh, euangelion. Uh, that he, it was, uh, let's see, it would be the mystery of God is finished as he preached the good news to his servants, the prophets. Preached the gospel. Evangelized. Euangelion to the prophets, uh, and so we see that over and over again. As we see that uh, over and over again, the New Testament authors, Paul, Luke, uh, the the uh, the preachers, the apostles, they point to the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, Peter at the day of Pentecost, to show that the prophets and all that they have uh, prophesied and taught pointed toward Jesus Christ, pointed toward the fulfillment of uh, of the covenant, and so. We see that here the angel is proclaiming that this mystery is completed. This thing that was preached, this good news, this gospel that was preached to the prophets uh, in the Old Testament is now being completed as this seventh angel is going to sound his, his trumpet. And so it says... In verses 8 through 11 is where we're going to end. Uh, this is the last verses of the chapter. After this angel, after this mighty angel, who is Christ himself, uh, gives this testimony. He's, the testimony that he gives is there will be no longer a delay. The mystery of God uh, will, be, will be completed. Uh, and this is the testimony that he gives. One hand, right hand up in the air, uh, open book in his hand, the book of the covenant. It says in verse 8, Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. John is told to go and to take the book. And then he says in verse 9, he obeyed. He says, So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book and he said to me take it and eat it it will make your stomach bitter but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey that's really weird and then verse 10 says and so that's what he did i took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it and in my mouth it was sweet as honey and when i had eaten it my stomach was made bitter and then finally the last verse says and they said to me you must prophesy again concerning many nations many peoples and nations and tongues and kings so what we see is John is told a voice, the voice that he heard before, he hears again, and this voice says, go and get the book. Go and take the book from uh, the angel. And so John goes forward. He says, 
uh, he says, let me have the book that was uh, that you have in your right hand. And the angel tells him to eat the book. Um, that's kind of strange, isn't it? But not for a person who is steeped in the Old Testament. This is a very familiar picture. It's a reference to Ezekiel's commission as a prophet. What's happening here is John is being recommissioned as a prophet to go and to proclaim the gospel, to go and proclaim uh, the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. Uh, what you see in Ezekiel chapter 2, you're, you're going to see Ezekiel chapter 2 verse 9 all the way through Ezekiel 3 uh, verse 3. I'm going to read these verses to you. It's not too many of them. It says, this is Ezekiel when he saw the vision, is commissioned as a prophet. He says, and when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. We've seen that before. And there were written on it words of lamentation, of mourning and woe. We've seen that before. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I will give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. So here you see a, almost a direct parallel to what John is relating. You see, he is presented with a book, a book of a scroll, scroll of a book in Ezekiel. He's presented with the book. It's written on front and the back. We've already seen that in Revelation. Inside is lamentations, mournings, and woe. He is to bring judgment. He is told to eat this book. And so he does so. And then he says that it was sweet like honey in his mouth. And if you go down in Ezekiel chapter 3, I'm not going to read it to you, but if you go down to Ezekiel chapter 3 verse 14, you'll say, and then the angel, it'll say, and then the angel took away, took me away in the bitterness of my spirit. He was bitter. He was, um, he was sad because of the words of the book. He was going to have to preach judgment to the house of Israel. So you see here a book that was eaten, that was sweet as honey in the mouth, but yet it made his stomach bitter as he as he swallowed it. John is seeing the same thing. John is experiencing the same thing that Ezekiel saw. He obeys the prophetic commission. He goes and does what he's told. He goes and eats the book. He The book is sweet as honey. It is the word of God. It's truth. It's life. Uh, it's sweet to him, but yet the, the reality of it, the truth of it is bitter because he is going to be pronouncing judgment. Now, you, you might say, wait a minute. The, what we were just talking about was the euangelion, the, the gospel, the ev evangelism, what, what he had evangelized, the good news that he had given to the prophets. And this is what John is going to be given, the gospel. What so many people don't realize is that the gospel includes judgment. The gospel includes judgment and salvation. There are many people today that preach, quote unquote, the gospel that say, you know, just God has a wonderful plan for you and he loves you and he just wants to make your life better. He even wants to save you and he wants to take you to heaven. But they never mention the fact that God has commissioned the day when he will judge the world in righteousness. And if you are not found righteous in Christ, you will be you will be under the judgment of God and experience eternity in hell. There is there is bad news that makes the good news uh, so good. So it is both sweet as honey when we talk about the gospel, but it's also bitter because when you go and you preach the gospel, and anyone who's ever witnessed to family members or friends knows this to be true, that when, when that gospel is rejected, when it's refused, uh, there is a bitterness, there is a, a sadness, there is... Um, it is a uh, it's a mournful thing to understand that that uh, that people will be judged, people will be condemned because of their sin. So the gospel includes judgment, and that's why John is commissioned again as a prophet to go and eat this book. And he said, "You will prophesy again concerning about or to against." There are many different translations there. Many peoples, nations tongues, and kings. Now, I want you to put these two things together. Notice what he's saying. The mystery of God, as we've talked about through this chapter, is that the Gentiles have been included in the kingdom of God. Now, it is everyone who is in Christ. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, doesn't matter. The, 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 uh, 
The mystery is going to be fulfilled completely once and for all as the seventh trumpet sounds just as it has been prophesied uh, by the Old Testament prophets. And John, you're being commissioned with this. I'm giving you this book of the covenant. I'm giving you this book and you're going to eat it. And you know what? It's going to be sweet to you and it's going to be bitter in the same vein. And you are going to take it and you are going to prophesy to all to kings and nations and peoples. The the words are going to go to the entire world, heralding either judgment or they're going to herald deliverance, one of the two. And those same words go out to you today. Those same words go out to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every creed today. It is sweet as honey, but it is bitter. It's bitter as well because you, in the in the preaching of the gospel, in the realization of the mystery of God, which is the gospel, uh, you are have set before you, like Moses said, life and death. Uh, It'll either be judgment and condemnation and destruction, or it will be deliverance in Christ. And so what we see here is that the 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 mighty angel is coming and saying the the times are fulfilled the times are completed what daniel prophesied about times times and times and a half before these things will be completed he says now the time is come the time is no more the time of waiting is is no longer and all has been fulfilled all will be fulfilled excuse me when he says uh when the the angel about to blow the seven trumpet sounds in the next chapter we're going to see things uh, it's almost like the he's getting the ducks in a row. He's going to measure the temple and he's going to send out his two witnesses. And those two witnesses are going to prophesy. They're going to prophesy about, uh, we're going to see it's the gospel, but they're going to prophesy about those things and they're going to be killed and they're going to raise from the dead and all these things are going to happen. And, and uh, we, I want to show you the, uh, I'm not going to get into those right now because we could do a whole thing on those. Uh, it's pretty exciting stuff. It really is pretty exciting stuff stuff. And so what you need to know for chapter 10, though, is that Christ himself, Christ himself has given his testimony now. He has come down uh, in the form of this angel. John sees this vision. He has come down in might, in power, and he has placed a foot on the land, foot on the sea. He's raised his hand to heaven, and he has sworn by God that the time is completed. The mystery of God that was hidden is now being revealed. And John, as well as you and I are now commissioned as his prophets. And when when I say prophet, I'm talking about preachers, uh, witnesses, uh, those who testify to the gospel to go out to every nation and to proclaim to them both judgment and salvation. He said, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will proclaim to you. He will he will judge the world. He will not judge the world. He will he will speak of uh, sin, righteousness and justice judgment and that's what he will do so as we speak through his power we will not tickle ears by saying god has a wonderful plan for your life and that's the that's the uh, uh fulfillment of the gospel we will tell them both uh, of the judgment of god uh, and use that law and judgment to drive them as paul says the law is a schoolmaster that drives us to christ who is the salvation of our souls and the freedom uh, from the law and judgment